What does God want from me? You ever ask that question? The Bible's filled with commands, do's and don'ts, how to think, how to speak, how to act, all of it's covered. But what is it really all about? If you get down to the heart of the matter, what is the heart of the matter? You want to do what God requires. But what does God require? And assuming you know what God requires, could you even do it? There are no more fundamental questions than these. What does God require? And can I do it? This morning God is going to answer these questions for us from His Word. If you have your Bible, Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 37. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to use the ones we provided in the back of the pew in front of you. Mark chapter 12. We'll be looking this morning at verses 28 through 37. Before I read the Scripture, let me remind you briefly of the context. We are only a couple of days away from the crucifixion. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Over the last day or so, he has been in confrontation with the various religious groups. The Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. They, they've been trying to trip him up, to trap him in his words, to get him to say something that they could use against him in a trial. You see, they've determined that Jesus must die. So they're trying to gather ammunition. So they keep coming at him. All of these different questions. Where do you get your authority from? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Last week we looked at the absurd scenario they posed to Jesus about a woman who married seven brothers. None had a child. and They wanted to know who's going to be her husband in the resurrection. Each one of these who've come to Jesus, he's dismantled their trap and exposed them and their ignorance. And he's shown himself to be wise above all others. Well, today, we come to another incident. This is a scribe. He was an expert in the law of Moses, one who was employed for his ability to read and write. The scribes were the ones who made copies of the Scripture. They did it by hand, meticulously, one letter at a time. They were the primary teachers of the law, interpreters of the law. And he's heard how well Jesus has answered all these questions. And so he approaches Jesus. He's a little more friendly than the others have been. He, he seems to be, uh, have a little bit better attitude toward Jesus than the other groups have been. Let's read what the scripture says. Mark 12, beginning in verse 28. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And when one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, he recognized that he had answered them well and asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered thoughtfully, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would dare to ask him any more questions. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come now to your word, desiring to hear from heaven. Oh God, speak. Speak through me the word you would have us to hear. And give us ears to hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning, the question we are considering, what does God require of His people? I want to make three observations from the verses that we just read. Here's the first one. What God requires is love for Him and others. What God requires is love for Him and others. So in verse 28, we see the scribe Come to Jesus. He recognized Jesus had answered all the other questions very well. So he brings his own question. What commandment is the foremost of all? The teachers of the law, their tradition said there were 613 commandments in the law of Moses. 365 prohibitions, things you're not supposed to do, and 248 positive commands, things you were supposed to do. Now the rabbis differentiated between the commandments by labeling them either heavy or light. Um, the commands that made less of a demand on you, that were easier to keep, that had a smaller penalty if you broke them, those were the lighter commandments. The commands that, made, that, that required more of you to keep them, that had a stiffer penalty for breaking them, those were considered the heavy or weighty commandments. The most serious. Now, Jesus responds to this question, what commandment is the foremost of all? by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Now we need to make sure we understand what, what he means when he says what commandment is the foremost of all. You could say first. Not first in terms of order, but in terms of importance. Which ranks the highest 
among all the 613 commandments in the law of Moses, which one has the highest rank? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first part of what Jews call the Shema. It is Israel's basic declaration of faith. It was recited every day in the temple along with the Ten Commandments. This is the Jewish declaration of faith. So Jesus goes to this when asked the question, what's the most important, the greatest, the highest ranking commandment? So let's take a minute and consider what this means. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Okay, in this command, God lays claim to every facet of human personality. Did you catch that? God is laying claim to every aspect of human personality. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Let me, let me say it to you this way. You're to love God with all your mind your thinking, your thought processes, your will, your desires, in other words, your emotions, your feelings, and your strength, your energy, power, ability. The idea is that you are to love God with every single thing that you are. Every part of your being. And I want to show you something. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That preposition with means not by means of. Not, he's not saying love the Lord your God by means of your heart, by means of your soul. He's saying, love the Lord your God from the source of your heart. Love God from your heart, from your soul, from your strength, from your will. And you'll notice he repeats the word all. You see it? Four times. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. In other words, this is to be a total response. Not partial. Don't love God with part of your heart, part of your soul, part of your mind, part of your strength, but with all of it. Absolute, total of your being. The point of this commandment is that you are to be totally, unreservedly to love God with your entire being. Everything that you are. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. You may notice the scribe only asked one question. What's the foremost commandment? But Jesus gives him another. He attaches the second. Leviticus 19, 18, verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. 
Okay, as I said, this is from Leviticus 19.18. And this is linked with Deuteronomy 6.5, the previous command, by the word love. They're both love commands. And here's one way to look at it. The first command he gives, love the Lord your God, is a summary of the first part of the Ten Commandments, 1 through 4. The second command, love your neighbor as yourself, is a summary of the second part of the Ten Commandments, verses 5 through 10, beginning with honor your father and mother. So these two commandments are a summary of the entire law. Now, loving God and loving your neighbor are the most important commands. But there is a priority among the two. Loving other people, now this is important, loving other people is authentic only and even possibly on the basis of your love for God. In other words, you can't really love people if you don't love God. What did John say in the book of 1 John? How can you love God whom you can't see if you don't love your brother who you can see? In other words, if you claim to do one without the other, you're deceiving yourself. So, we're to love God and we're to love neighbor. We talked about what does it mean to love God. Let's talk about what it means to love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now we need to be clear what that doesn't mean. Jesus is not commending self-love. Oh, you're to love yourself. Does that sound like Jesus? Or, or does this sound like Jesus? If anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself. So Jesus is not some modern philosophical guru who's promoting self-love. Oh, you just need to love yourself. You need more self-esteem. That's not at all the picture Jesus has given. What Jesus is saying, he is assuming that people do love themselves. He's not saying you should, he's saying you do. People have a basic self-interest. You bathe yourself. You feed yourself. You clothe yourself. You seek shelter for yourself. You take medicine. You go to the doctor. You put on a seatbelt. There are a thousand different things you do as a means of caring for yourself. You love yourself. Rather not you always like yourself. You may be like me. I know that I care about myself because of the things I do, but I don't always look in the mirror and like what the person I'm looking at. But, but all of us love ourselves. And what this command is, the same self-interest that we have, we are interested in, we care about what happens to us, Jesus is saying you're to extend that same kind of love to others. You're to care about other people and what happens to them the same way you care about yourself and what happens to you. Now what Jesus is saying here when he says to love God and love people, he's letting us know that the requirements of the law, 
cannot be fulfilled apart from love for God and love for people. You simply cannot do what the law requires apart from love for God and love for people. Now, what does God require of you and me? He requires us to love Him with everything we are. And He requires us to love others with the same kind of care that we have for ourselves. Now, here's the second part of this I want to show you. Here's the second observation I want to make. take from verses 22, excuse me, verses 32 and 33. What God requires is love from the heart. Now, this is taking this command just a step further. Beyond action to the heart. Now, when Jesus gives this answer, we might, accept, we might expect this scribe to endorse the priestly sacrifices above all forms of worship. But he doesn't. Jesus said what's most important is to love God and love neighbor. And you might think this scribe, this expert in the law, would say, what about the sacrifices? I mean, the whole temple was designed around this process of bringing sacrifices. The whole religion of Israel was based on being in right relationship with God through bringing these sacrifices. But notice what the scribe said in verse 32. The scribe answered Jesus, Right, teacher. No, you're right. You truly stated that God is one. There is no one else besides Him. To love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love, uh, to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. I mean, this is a guy, if anybody's going to say, oh, no, 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 nothing is more important than the sacrifices we bring to the Lord. You'd think this guy would say that, but he doesn't. Loving God and loving your neighbor is not just more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. It is much more. Far more important. Now, he's not questioning the validity of the sacrifices. He's not saying the sacrifices and offerings are not important. He's saying, compared to love, they're way down the list. Now, here's a question we have to ask. Why? Here's why. Sacrifices and offerings can be brought to God without any real affection for God whatsoever. In other words, you can go through the motions of offering your sacrifices to God at the temple apart from any real commitment to God at all. You understand? That's something you do externally. It doesn't require your heart this requires you to go through the motions. Just like you can come here on Sunday and go through the motions of what we do in worship without your heart being involved at all. And you know, Israel did this. They went through the motions. Even though their hearts were not often right with God. Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 13. God said to Israel, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says Yahweh. 
I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fed cattle, and in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats, I take no pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this tramping of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. They were going through the motions, but God wanted more than that. And just going through the motions was not sufficient. What's the point of saying that loving God and loving your neighbor is more important than offering all these burnt offerings and sacrifices? Here's what he's teaching us about love. The love that God requires is first internal. The love that God requires is first internal. Let me say it another way. You cannot love the way God commands you to love if your heart's not in it. Amen, preacher. You cannot love the way the Scripture commands you to love if your heart is not in it. That's why to love is far more important than the sacrifices because those you can do even if your heart's not in it. But to love the way God says love, to love God and love people the way we're called to, you can only do it if it flows out of who you are on the inside. I want you to think about this. These two offerings he mentioned in verse 33, it's much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. These particular offerings were the kind that were offered completely to God. Sometimes when you'd bring sacrifices, the worshiper would eat a portion of it. Not these. These were offered totally to God. What that means is, these are the most sacred of all the offerings. Now think about this. Even the most sacred of religious duties cannot take precedence over love. And they have no meaning unless they're expressions of love. Even the most important of all the things God commanded them to do as far as sacrifices, the most sacred thing they did in the temple, if it didn't flow from a heart of love, it didn't mean anything. Your most sacred religious service to God means nothing if it doesn't flow from a heart of love. This is why Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 15, verses 7 and 8, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God's not interested in being honored with your lips. He's interested in your heart. Now, let me say it to you like this. The love God commands requires more than outward confirmation. It requires inward transformation. It requires more than just outwardly conforming to a set of rules and rituals. It requires being transformed on the inside. 
Jesus was confronted by the rich young ruler who said, how do I gain eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commands. The man said, I've done all these commands from my youth. What did Jesus say? One thing you lack. In other words, you're still missing something. Now, I want you to think about what this means. Obedience without heart isn't. Let me say that again. Obedience without heart isn't obedience. It isn't obedience if it's not from the heart. Now, that doesn't mean on days when you don't feel like doing what you ought to do, you don't have to do it. No, you ought to do the things you ought to do regardless of how you feel. But the point is this. You cannot perform genuine obedience if it doesn't flow from a heart that loves God and loves people. The Pharisees kept all the rules. But Jesus called them hypocrites. They didn't do the things they did because they loved God. They didn't give the poor because to the poor because they loved the poor. They did it because they believed that by keeping the rules, they would be in God's favor. It wasn't a matter of love. It was a matter of self-righteousness. I want to make a third observation from these verses. We've said so far that what God requires is love for Him and others. And we said what God requires is love from the heart. He requires us to love Him entirely with all of ourselves and to do it from the heart. He requires us to have the same care for others that we have for ourselves. And He requires us to do it from the heart. And let me say a third thing about this love. What God requires demands faith in Jesus. Notice what Jesus says. He's asked this question, what's the most important command? He gives his answer, love God, love your neighbor. The, the scribe says, you're right, Jesus. That's more important than anything else, even the offering and sacrifices. Notice what Jesus says next in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered thoughtfully, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. He understood something that I'm not sure even the disciples really understood yet. He understood the difference an internal love and just external actions. He understood that what God wanted was a changed heart, not just conformity to a list of rules. He understood that what God is aiming at is not just you doing certain things, but you being a certain kind of person. This scribe understood that. He knew it's about more than rule keeping. It's about who you are on the inside. But what does Jesus say? He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. 
You know what that means, don't you? In spite of his understanding, he's still on the outside. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Let's say it another way. You're near the kingdom of God. But not in it. Think about this. Think about Noah's ark and the flood. When God shut the door of the ark, it didn't matter if you were 18 inches from the door or 18 miles. You were still outside. The scribe was near the kingdom. Not far. Near. But he's still on the outside. Why? Here's why. Despite his understanding of what God requires, he was still, first of all, guilty of a failure to do it. Right? Despite the fact that he knew we had to love God with all our heart, love people with all our heart, despite the fact that he knew that, he had still failed many, many times to do it. Secondly, he was unable to do it. Listen. When I described to you earlier in this message what it looks like to love God as He requires with all of your thought processes, with all of your desires, with all of your affection, with all of your energy, with every single part of you, when I described that loving God that way is what He requires, your first thought should have been, but I can't do that. You can't do what God requires. You're supposed to love irritating, sorry people just as much as you love yourself. You can't do that. Huh? The scribe couldn't do it. He was guilty of not doing it many times. And that left him outside the kingdom. Now these next few verses may seem like they're not connected at all. But I want to show you they are. After this interaction with the scribe, Jesus asked a question himself to the people. Verse 35. Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And they did, right? The Jews said the Messiah, the one who was promised to come, was the son of David. They said that because the Messiah was going to be a descendant of King David. 2 Samuel 7. God promised David that one of his descendants would reign on the throne of God's people forever. So in that sense, Messiah is the son of David, the ancestor of David. So it was commonly common to call the Christ the son of David. You remember when Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus? What did Bartimaeus say? Son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus came in on the triumphant entry, they, you know what, what did they say? Hosanna to the son of David. Now notice what Jesus quotes in verse 36. 
David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 verse 1. He said, How is it that the Messiah can be the son of David? Look at what David said about the Messiah. The Lord said to my Lord. The first Lord is Yahweh, God. God said to my Lord, David is the my. Now, David is saying, verse 37, David calls the Messiah his Lord. So in what sense is he his son? Here's the point. Fathers don't call, uh, fathers don't call their sons Lord. It works the other way around. If the Messiah is truly David's son, then David can't rightfully call him Lord. Are you following me? The father held a higher position than the son. You with me? Jesus said, if he's really, if the Messiah is the son of David, then why does David call him Lord? Why is David calling the one who's supposed to be his son Lord? And look what he says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, ben uh, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now I need you to make sure you understand that this verse is talking about Jesus. The Messiah. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is quoting that same verse from Psalm that Jesus uses, and he's applying it to Jesus. In other words, he's saying the one David was talking about in Psalm 110, verse 1, is Jesus. He is that Messiah. Jesus is the one David calls Lord. Are you with me? So how can you say Jesus the Messiah is the son of David if he's David's Lord? And if he's not truly David's son, and he's not truly, whose son is he? Whose son is he? The very first verse in this book tells us. Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus is not rejecting the title Son of God. He's not, excuse me, Son of David. He's not saying it's inappropriate for you to call me the Son of David. He knows what the title means, and he is the Messiah. He's not rebuking them for calling Messiah Son of David. What he is pointing out is that that's not a full understanding of who the Messiah is, the Christ. He's actually the Son of God. Now, I need you to understand, what does all that have to do with this scribe being outside the kingdom of God and loving your neighbor as yourself? What does that have to do with all this? Think about this. The scribe is outside of the kingdom. 
despite the understanding he has of what God requires, he's still guilty of a failure to do what God requires, and he's still unable to do it. What's the only thing that can change that? What's the only thing that can get him in the kingdom? What's the only thing that can get him forgiven for his failure to love God and love people as God requires? What's the only thing that can enable him to love God and love people the way God requires? What's the only thing that can do that? Let me say it another way. What's the only one who can do that? Jesus. Jesus said, you're near the kingdom of God, but you're still outside. What was he missing? He's missing faith in Jesus. He's missing the belief and embrace that Jesus is not only the Christ, he is the very Son of God. When you come to the place that you embrace who Jesus truly is, by faith and repentance, you come to, to acknowledge Him as the Son of God and Savior. You are made clean from all the times you failed to love God and love people. And you're given the Spirit of God to enable you to begin to love the way God wants you to. Listen to what I'm telling you today. Unless and until you turn to Christ, you will remain outside of the kingdom of God because you will never be able to love God and people as He requires. And secondly, you'll never be forgiven for your failure to love God and people as He requires. So what does God require of His people? That we love Him and love others from the heart. How is that possible? Only through faith in Christ. Here's the whole sermon in a sentence. You ready? Only through faith in Christ can you love God and love others as He requires. Now I want to leave you with one more thought. What is Christian growth? As Christians in church folks, we talk a lot about growing as Christians. What is Christian growth? It is growth in love. It is growth in your capacity to love God as He requires and to love people as He requires. That's what Christian growth is. Why do we pursue holiness? Why do we seek to rid ourselves of sin and pursue holiness before God? It comes from a heart that wants to honor God. A heart that longs to please Him. A heart that believes our joy is found in Him. You see what I'm saying? It, it, it's, it's not just an external act of the will. It, the pursuit of holiness flows out of a love we have for God. And as we love people the way we should, as we grow in our capacity to love people the way we should, where does that come from? That too comes as God begins to transform our heart and we begin to love others the way we ought to. That's Christian growth.
as we grow in our capacity to love God and love others. Listen, only through faith in Christ can you love God and love others as He requires. Let's pray.